1: Good afternoon listeners, this is 3CR, the Dogs Program at 12 noon, midday on Saturdays. Every Saturday we are here to defend and to promote public education. We have a website at www.adogs.info and every week we try to put up a press release and this is the press release number 697 for this week. Haleybury College and Flagstaff Gardens. Should private schools pay tax? Residents of North and West Melbourne and office workers from the CBD have a wonderful leisure playground at the northwestern edge of the city. Listeners, all you have to do is to walk along there at lunchtime to see how well used this wonderful playground is. It's the Flagstaff Gardens which surround the Flagstaff Hill. In the early days, the Flagstaff stood unimpeded by skyscrapers receiving signals from the Williamstown Flagstaff when a ship was coming up the bay, laden with news from home. And everybody went up to the hill to watch the ship and then run down to the docks to collect the letters. It was a meeting place for everyone. In bicentennial year 1988, despite the efforts of locals and historians and the, the Melbourne City Council too, the view from the Flagstaff to Williamstown Flagstaff was lost when a multi-storied National Bank building was built on King Street. The... The um, objectors to this building did manage to cut off an edge of it. So there was a tunnel vision from the Flagstaff to the Flagstaff at Williamstown, but that was blocked out by a multi-storey building that was allowed by Kennett soon after. Now, this National Bank building that was built in 1988 is now occupied, it's been sold... For fifty-four million or more, by to a branch of Haileybury College, which is a multi-million-dollar business run by the Uniting Church and heavily subsidised by the taxpayers in direct and indirect grants. Now, to add insult to injury for the Flagstaff, this school is using the Flagstaff Gardens, a resource paid for by the local council rate payers as a playground. And here it should be noted that Hayleybury, a school for the wealthy, is a charity and does not pay any rates, land tax, income tax or GST or any other taxes for that matter. Dogs, the Defence of Government Schools and others like the Humanists and Rationalists their organisations have for some years been questioning this extraordinary situation in which billions of dollars in taxation expenditures, that's what they are, they are taxation expenditures, and they can and should be um, enumerated. We should know exactly how much we are giving in indirect grants, uh, that is exemptions from taxes, taxation expenditures, to these wealthy institutions. So we have been questioning the expenditures that are channelled every year into the private sector schools. But we are not alone. We've been joined by Max Harding, a law professor at the University of Melbourne. In the conversation of the 15th of March 2016 and also reproduced on the ABC website, Max Harding asked... Do wealthy private schools and hospitals deserve exemptions from paying income tax when they charge heavy fees that most people cannot afford for their services? Now, this important question has not been tested legally until recently, and then it was, has only been tested in England which is very interesting because our charity law is taken from English common law. Harding wrote, there's no reason why being a charity must lead to tax exemptions and there are benefits and burdens to being a charity that have nothing to do with tax. Now, the reason they have these taxation exemptions is because of the legal history. How has this legal definition, which really has almost nothing to do with the common man's definition, it doesn't follow, it doesn't in any way pass the pub test, I can tell you. How is this legal fiction, if you like, evolved? This legal definition of charity in Australia is drawn from a complex combination of statutory and judge made law which goes back hundreds of years. But not only is the definition complex, it's also in many ways counterintuitive. Outside legal circles, charity is usually associated with helping the poor or those who are disadvantaged in other ways. Most of us give some kind of money every year, don't we, to a charity of our choice. Some of us give it to the blind society, other people give it to groups that have been set up for the homeless, others give it to those who can't hear properly. Uh, There are many, not to mention um, the RSPCA or all the many charities which we are aware of, including of course religious charities. But there was a landmark case in the late 19th century. Harding doesn't mention it, but I can tell you it was the Pempsor case in which the UK House of Lords ruled that organisations could be charitable in law, even when their purposes were not directed at assisting the disadvantaged in society. And I would like to say here, uh, listeners, that I questioned this PEMSL case in an academic article back in 2006. This whole definition has concerned yours truly for a long, long time. Now the law lords in England said that educational and religious organisations along with a host of other community-serving organisations could also be charities. And religious organisations were enabled to be charities because of an earlier case in the 18th century known as the Bishop of Durham case. And the Bishop of Durham case overturned the 1601 preamble to the law of charities in Elizabethan times and it was an Elizabethan statute. And people often say that the law of charity goes back to this but they don't bother to go and read the preamble. If you go and read this preamble, it's very interesting. The only thing that is religious that fits under the list of charitable organisations that should be regarded as charities in Elizabeth I's list of charities in her preamble of 1601, is the church tower, the tower of the local church that can be looked after as a charity. And why? Because it was from the tower of the local church that any fire or anything that was of concern to the whole community could be cited. But no other religious organisation was in any way tax-exempt or given the word charity after it until the Bishop of Durham case. So um, when they say that you go back to Elizabeth, sometimes I think it would be a very good idea to go back to Elizabeth and the Reformation days. However, back in 1899, in the Pemsel case, the law lords said that educational and religious organisations, just by virtue of the fact that they were called religious or educational, could also be charities. Now, this set the tone for an expanding understanding of charity that has persisted around the English-speaking world, including Australia. Listeners, we are now at the situation where the Bethel group, a Baptist group that runs funeral homes for profit, for profit, they make a great deal of money from their funerals. Making, uh, running funerals is, is um, it's very dollar-wise. You make a lot of money from it. That is a charity. Now, should private schools have to pay tax? Harding asks us. Private schools, for example, are educational institutions, so ipso facto, under the common law, they are charities. It doesn't matter how wealthy they are or how much money they rake in in fees and taxpayer money, of course, every year. Uh, In a world in which educational opportunity is unjustly distributed, why should private schools be exempt from paying income tax, Harding asks. There's an argument that we should tax them for their fee and investment income and then spend that revenue improving the public school system. Some say this would be better than allowing schools that serve the top end of town to use income to fund lavish building projects and augment their endowments. But getting back to basics, there is a reason why charity law recognises advancing education as a type of charitable purpose because education is a public benefit in the sense that an educated society is one that is better for everyone in it but some private schools have been proved through the my school program uh, which is and the website that to be overfunded because Australia's school funding model provides high levels of public funding to private schools while also allowing them to charge fees Now, this proposition has been the basis for a straightforward argument for recognising that private schools, like all not-for-profit public benefit organisations, are charities under the law. But even so, the questions of inclusion and access refuse to go away, because are these people providing a public service? No, they are providing a very private service for private parents who want a better go for their children than is given to other children. And what is happening in England? Now, this is very interesting. A 2011 tribunal decision in England and Wales has ruled that private schools, if they are to enjoy charity status and the tax privileges that come with it, must include those unable to afford their fees, whether through means-tested bursary schemes, sharing facilities with the local community or other strategies. To date, Australian charity law has not followed a path similar to that taken in England and Wales yet. Whether it should depends in part on how we weigh the public benefit of education against the detriments associated with private schools being exclusive. Well, listeners, the dog's position is that unless these private schools are taken over and become public schools and accessible to all children, then they cannot possibly be said to be providing a public benefit. They are providing essentially a private benefit. Now, an exercise this like this for the legal mind is far from straightforward. For the person who's interested in the pubs test, it's just very straightforward indeed. We pay for them, take them over and make them public. But part of the answer for the legal beagles seems to depend on whose job it is to solve the problems of injustice in the distribution of educational opportunity. Put bluntly, is it the job of private schools to improve the educational opportunities of those whose families cannot afford their fees, or is it the job of the state? If it's the job of the state, perhaps the solution involves withdrawing the grant funding the state gives to private schools and investing more in the public system. Well, thank goodness somebody is actually saying it. Congratulations, Professor Hardy. But then why can't the state show its commitment to improving the public school system by withdrawing tax exemptions from private schools? This might well be an appropriate move to make, but importantly, it does not necessarily entail taking away the status charity from these schools. There's no reason why being a charity must lead to an entity being tax-exempt. And being a charity means much more than not paying tax. For example, it also means being endorsed and regulated by the state and being exempt from the requirements of a range of laws like anti-discrimination laws. So a private school can choose and impose requirements on those whom they hire and fire. The same point about the lack of the necessary connection may be made in respect of rules that enable the donor to a school building fund, for example, claims a tax exemption. Deduction, sorry. These rules, which enable the rich to give tax-free gifts to wealthy private schools, could be repealed without interfering with the charity status of those schools. They probably should be repealed as part of a broad program of tax reform. You'd be surprised how much money would come in to re- to repair the budget if we actually tackled these issues, because the uh, charity uh, part of our economy is at least at least uh, worth seventy billion. One, uh, so if you actually um, had broader tax reform, one in which deductions for charitable gifts are replaced with tax credits or another alternative, you could in fact bring in quite a lot of money to the Treasury. The question of whether private schools and other fee-charging charities should in fact be charities is not quite the same as the question of whether they or their supporters should receive tax privileges. Uh, Now, Harding's not prepared to answer it because he says it's rather easy. But he was also prepared to say that we must tackle both of these issues as social and economic inequality in Australia grows more substantial and it's more concerning over time. So that was what Professor Matthew Harding had to say, uh, and uh, I find it very interesting because up there in northwest Melbourne, the ratepayers and the people who use the park are not always happy that Haileybury just sees our park, their park, the park that they pay for, as their playground. Um, if they're going to use it and abuse it, uh, when other people in fact want to use where the children are, then perhaps they should be asked to pay for it. And uh, we shouldn't be... Uh, regarding them as a charity but we'll have a quick break before we go to Dale who's got a very interesting and um, I don't know whether it's heartening but it's certainly a sad story to tell you but let's have a little bit of music first. This is the Programme 3CR 855 on the AM dial and uh, that was a little bit of Books to Huda, How Brightly Gleams the Morning Star. I think that's Venus, isn't it? But it's a very famous um, hymn and Books to Huda has written a chorale on it and that was David Kinsella playing it. But now over to Dale and her story. Thanks, Jean. I've
0: got an article here that was in The Age on the 17th of March and it's by their education editor, Henrietta Cook, entitled How School Gave Homeless Sean Food and a Future. At the start of year 11, Sean Carter came home to an empty house. The locks had been changed, his belongings were gone and his mother had left. He'd been paying rent, handing over the money he earned, working as a cleaner and at a pizza shop. It wasn't enough to to avoid an eviction. Everyone was gone, he said. I was by myself. He spent the next 18 months sleeping in parks, the local shopping mall and on friends' couches. But he always showed up to school, often tired and hungry. Sean's school, Wyndham Community and Educational Centre, uh connected him to homelessness services, which offered him food, showers and eventually a home. I turned up to school every day because that was the only way I could get food, he said. To come somewhere and feel wanted is nice. This was the only constant support I had in my life. At any one time, about three out of 100 students at the Werribee Education Centre are homeless. These students are often sleep-deprived and the school provides them with pillows and sleeping bags so they can doze between classes. Sean's experience is not so rare. The number of Victorian students seeking help from homelessness services has more than doubled in the past four years. An analysis of Australian... Institute of Health and Welfare data by the Council to Homeless Persons, shows that 10,470 children enrolled in school and preschool used Victorian homelessness services the last financial year. This means that one in 10 people who sought help were enrolled at school. This compares to the 4,385 children in 2012-2013. High rents in the private rental market and public housing shortages are fueling the increase, according to the council's chief executive, Jenny Smith. Homelessness isn't just the rough sleeping we see on the street, said Miss Smith. Kids from disadvantaged families who aren't fortunate enough to be in social housing are often forced to chop and change schools as they cycle in and out of temporary accommodation or as their parents move around to find cheaper housing. A few months after he became homeless, Sean realised that education was the only way to escape his situation. Teresa Vizintin, the VCAL and Youth Manager at Wyndham Community Education Centre, told the then-teenager that he needed to finish school. She made an agreement with Sean's employer. If he showed up to school, he would keep his job. It was a bit of tough love, Miss Vizinton said. There were tears, but we got there in the end. We were trying to get Sean to understand how important education was and how it can change lives. Sean studied at school school late into the evening and got involved in community projects because he knew it was safer than being on the streets. Teachers taught him how to trust adults and how to work through personal issues. You come to school and think you're not equal to other students. They're they're going to go home to a mum and dad, but you're not. They were the issues that I had to deal with. He completed his VCAL studies in 2013 and secured permanent accommodation halfway through Year 12. The 22-year-old is now completing a carpentry apprenticeship has a steady income and is renting his own house. He regularly returns to his old school to speak to students. If I didn't go to school, I would have gone down a very bad path. And just goes on to say some of the um, figures that have changed uh, of Victorian students seeking homelessness support. So they did mention in the period between 2012 and 2013 that there was... 4,385 students accessing homeless support services. Uh, yeah, and then in 2013, it was 7,000. Then in 2014, up to 10,000. And then in 2015, 10,470 students accessing homelessness services.
1: The history is full of the cries of children and it's the teachers who hear them first. Uh, this, this problem of homelessness of children... It's not new. Uh, it started when they started privatising everything in the 1980s and there was a very good school like this Wyndham School at Ardock. It was the first one that made sure that before they started their lessons, every child had had breakfast and the children came to Ardock, and that was the first school that Kennett closed mm. in the 1990s and I always felt that that was symbolic. Mm. of the way the wealthy, including those associated with the wealthy schools, the religious people, regarded our children Mm. because they are our children. Every child is our child and if we don't look after them, uh, then uh, we will have problems and, of course, we do have problems. Mm. Meanwhile... The Kennett years have not gone away under the Andrews government and we find in The Age this week, Henrietta Cook telling us that residents of Melbourne's West think that they've been getting a rotten deal uh, because while two MPs accused of rorting allowances out there are living outside their seats, plans for a youth detention centre and the sale of five... Five former school sites is on the agenda. Last week, the City of Brimbank councillors unanimously voted to try to stop the Andrews government from selling five former school sites, saying that the decision was short sighted. Mayor John Heddix said that the land was not surplus and the growing area would need more schools in the future. We don't believe there's sufficient justification for these sites to be sold off, he said. We're asking to see real proof that these sites will not be needed in the future for education purposes. Well, perhaps Kennett should have done that in Richmond, because Robert was telling us about what's happening in Richmond last week, and Coburg. The people in the West don't want to have to turn around and do what the people in Coburg and Richmond have had to do to get a school at all for their children. An extra 90,000 students will need to be accommodated in Victorian schools over the next five years, with the student boom being felt most acutely in the inner city and growth corridor areas. And those children's parents are choosing public rather than private schools because not only do they have a big mortgage to pay, bigger than their parents, they also understand that value for money is in the public sector, not the private sector, which always has been, always will be and always is a parasitic system, parasitic on the public sector. Now, the schools out in the West who are being that are being prepared for sale were closed by previous state governments and they include the following: the Keeler Park Primary School, the Calder Rise Primary School, the Kealba Secondary College, Deer Park Primary School and an underdeveloped Peter12 school site in Taylor's Lakes, which is a new area. Crazy. Councillor Virginia Takos, who's a member of Public Education Lobby Group, Our Children, Our Schools, said that some local schools were already starting to cap enrolments. These these places will be needed very shortly. She said that the sites could be used as sporting facilities in the short term and transformed into schools in the future. It's a community asset, she said. It should be banked for future needs. We would be able to breathe a bit easier if we knew we could develop the sites into schools further down the track. A spokeswoman for Education Minister, James Molino, said the sites were declared surplus under former governments. Our priority, she said, was to provide students with outstanding schools. I will guff, guff, guff. She said that the government had invested one point eight billion in schools after the past two budgets to address increasing student demand, including a twenty five million investment in brimbank well, they might need a fifty million investment in Brimbank and they certainly don't need to sell schools to get that twenty five million back again. The state government has rezoned four of the five sites as residential but the fifth site called Arise Primary School has not yet been rezoned. So they build more houses, more family homes and there will be children born in those homes and there will be no school. And that's what has already happened all throughout Victoria where Kennett closed so many schools in the 90s. Michelle Falson... From Save Our Schools, um, no sorry, Our our, our Children, Our Schools, our hopes that the land will be preserved so that she has more options when her five and seven-year-old sons start high school. The government always says they're focusing on our children's education but this is limiting our options, she said, and it blows my mind. As values, land values surge, the benefits of retaining closed school sites have seen have been seen in many parts of Melbourne because families have flocked to reopen schools such as the Albert Park Secondary College, which reached capacity soon after opening, Coburg High, which has experienced a 326 per cent enrolment in, in the past three years. The state government said late last year that the former Preston Girls Secondary School, which closed in 2013 because of dwindling enrolments, is now going to reopen, and not before its time, as a co-ed school. The Grattan Institute has predicted that up to 220 new schools will need to be built in Victoria in the next decade to cope with the student boom. So there you are. Uh, It's very interesting. What does the Molino-Andrews government think is going to happen out there? Do they think that the Catholic Education Office and Hayley Berries are going to educate the children of the local area? I very much doubt because that is not what they see their job to be. They see their job to be the education of those who they believe should have the first-class ticket to the good job and heaven. But uh, we'll have a little bit of a break uh, and uh, a little bit more music. This is the Dogs Programme on 3CR that you're listening to, 8.55 on the AM dial. We're here to defend and to promote public education. And you've been listening to a keyboard, uh, a harpsichord played by David Kinsella. And he has been playing the work of Clarenbolt, uh, who was a composer at the court of Louis the Fourteenth, And that was the Suite du Premier Ton. The bus et dessus de trompette. So we hope you enjoyed it. But uh, here we are back again with uh, some very interesting news and views. And uh, what I've got here before me, before I ask uh, Dale to tell you how privatisation is now very much on the back burner politically, as we've seen in the Western Australian election. And uh, it's no longer the answer for everything. In fact, Mm -hmm. in fact, listeners, we are now finding that the one asset which people refused to sell under Howard, namely the Snowy River Mountain Scheme, our hydro scheme, is now, because it's a public asset, all that is left for our Prime Minister to use. I don't know whether it's abused, but certainly to develop to solve the so-called energy crisis. Mm. But um, let's have a look back to the private schools and privatisation because private schools are in fact losing their magnetic pull according to Ross Gittins of the Sydney Morning Herald. It's drawn little comment, he says, but the decades-long drift of students from government to non-government schools has ended. Figures released by the Bureau of Statistics last month show that 65 per cent of our 3.8 million students went to public schools in 2016. And this means, dear listeners, that 68 per, 65% of the children of Australia, who will be the adults of tomorrow, have learnt to live with children from all backgrounds. And the same can not necessarily be said of private schools. In fact, the reverse. Now, um... That was the same proportion as in 2013 and if anything, the public school share is creeping up. So he says, what's it like to sit the selective schools test? Four students from Sydney's Hurstville Public School tell us what they thought about sitting for the selective high school placement test because in New South Wales you have more selective public schools than you do have uh, in Victoria. But the non-government share divides between Catholic systemic schools with 20% and independent schools with less than 15%. So he talks about those as private schools. But the public school 65% today is down from 79% in 1977. And it's taken billions and billions of dollars, of course, to get to that point. So Ross Kittens tries to explain those many years of the drift before they wonder why it stopped. When Ipsos Public Affairs asked people why they thought other people sent their children to private schools, the most commonly cited reasons included the higher standard of education, 50%, the better discipline, 49%, the better facilities, 46%, the size of classes, 43%, because it's a status symbol. 40%. None of them, you noticed, mentioned religion. And yet in the first place, the Roman Catholic Church demanded to have its own system because they claimed that they had to teach the children the faith of their fathers back in the 19th century. Interesting, isn't it? Almost uniquely among other developed countries, Australian parents have a much higher proportion of private schools to choose and they've been given greater freedom to choose between government schools as well. Successive federal and state governments have seen greater parental choice between public and private schools as a virtue. Well, dogs don't. We don't see it as a virtue at all because it cuts directly across the common good, uh, the citizenship obligations and uh, it certainly means that parents who do this are more interested in the private good and see their little Billy and their little Sarah or whoever it is as something very, very special that should be given more special treatment than other children. Well, this... uh, this so-called virtue has been encouraged by increasing the combined grants to private schools at a much faster rate than the funding to public schools. And yet, and yet, all these billions and billions of dollars later, the only difference they have made is to reduce the public school uh, enrolment from 79% down to 65%. And it's cost a lot more and there is ridiculous duplication of facilities in the education of Australian children. And they're not doing the job because Australia is falling behind in the International Jones Test. Now private schools are amongst the things that economists classify as positional goods. They reveal your position in the pecking order. So there you are, listeners. Private schools are there to make sure that if you send your child and if you yourself went to a state school, you're part of some pecking order. Interesting, isn't it? Because so many who come out of the uh, public school system are not respecters of persons. They are Australians and they are not interested in so-called pecking orders because their education has been second to none well Ross Gissens has his own theory on why so many people have opted for private schooling and he thinks a lot of it gets down to parental guilt these days families have fewer children which means parents take a lot more active interest in their children's schooling than they did when he himself was the last of four and these days, both parents are more likely to be in paid work. That's if they've got work, meaning they have more money to spend. That's if they are on a good salary. But see less of their kids than their parents actually did. So what is more natural than for parents to believe that in their decisions about how to spend their income, ensuring their children get the best education possible should have high priority. So while they are not necessarily particularly good parents, They believe that somehow if they spend what money they've got on private schooling, they can turn around and say, see, look at us, we are good parents. Uh, And what's more natural in the market economy than to assume that the more you have to pay for something, the higher quality it's likely to be? Well, some of us are learning otherwise, aren't we? Especially parents who are spending a high proportion of their income on private education. Of course, it's the old male cop-out spread to women. Ross Giddens may not see as much of his children as he'd like to, but he's working night and day so he can afford to give them the best of everything. And the more materialist you are, the more you're inclined to judge a school by the quality of its facilities like gym and swimming pools, music, art and drama theatres, than by the quality of its teachers. Well, if that's the way they judge it, they should get up to the new Mernda Peter 12 schools because (laughs) it's got a wonderful gymnasium and school swimming pool. And uh, yes, all of the locals are very happy indeed. They're there every Saturday morning uh, teaching their children to swim. Uh, yes, well, these things are more observable than the quality of the teachers. Whatever people give us their reasons for preferring private schools, you'll never convince kittens that they're not well aware of the status they gain by sending their children to private schools, especially the big independent ones, so-called. Let's... Let's forget about this independent. Let's call them dependent and be done with it. Private schools, he says, are among the things that economists classify, he says, as positional goods. But um, the possibility is that things are changing. The drift to the private schools, so-called, has come to an end. Why? Why? Well, he's got a few theories, but that's what they are. They are theories. One possibility is the slow wage growth of recent years has made it harder for parents to afford private school fees. That's particularly the case for the really wealthy schools. Um, and nor does the rate at which government grants have been growing seem to have had much effect in slowing the rate at which the government, the uh, private school fees have, have, have grown. Uh, All of this money that's been pouring into them from the Treasury was supposed to bring the fees down, but the fees have still gone up. And Ross Gitton says that as economic textbooks predict, independent school fees rise according to what the market will be. They judge how strongly demand for their products growing is relative to supply by the length of their waiting lists. In any case, keeping the cost of so-called independent schooling high is an essential element in maintaining its status as a positional good. Now, another possible contributor, Ross Gittin's, uh, thinks to the end of the drift to private schools is the decision of state governments, particularly the New South Wales governments, to increase the number of places at selective schools. And this, of course, goes back to the 1960s and 70s when comprehensive schools started in New South Wales and I always thought it was interesting that state aid started at the same time. The middle classes did not want their children rubbing shoulders with the working classes. As a parent who's had uh, one child in an independent and selective school Uh, Ross Gittens assures uh, his readers that selective schooling works well as an intellectual positional good. But there's one last possible contributor to the end of the trend to private schools for Ross Gittens and it's perhaps an economic one. The parents are suddenly realising that paying all those fees doesn't buy your child superior academic results along with their old school tie. Now Julia Gillard's My school website has done little to encourage greater competition between schools, which was a silly idea that she got from The Economist, but it has provided a fabulous database for database for educational researchers. and these researchers have used it to demonstrate that the best predictor of children's academic results is the socioeconomic status of their parents. So this privatisation of education, goes alongside the privatisation of so much of our wonderful public facilities that have been sold off and they no longer bring in income, please note, in the last 30 years under the neoliberal market ideology. But even that is under question and coming to an end and Dale is going to tell us about an article that has recently been written because there's just been a routing of the coalition government in Western Australia by a Labor government that was promising not to privatise the electricity there. Over to doubt.
0: Thanks, Jean. Yeah, the article I've got here is from The Age on March the 14th and it's from uh, Elizabeth Knight. Privatisation proves the dirtiest word in politics. The Western Australian Liberals were damaged by their trouncing at the weekend election, but the strategy of using government privatisations to raise money was probably the biggest casualty. They are now considered near dead in the water. Political pollster and consultant John Utting, who worked on the Western Australian campaign for Labor, said the push by the Liberals to even partly privatise the state's polls and wires asset, Western Power, was by far the biggest factor in its defeat. He said the numbers came in at 70% against. That brings to two, the number of states largely ousted on the back of pro-privatisation policies in recent years. The first being Queensland's Liberal National Party government in 2015. Labor's Anastasia Palaszczuk won a seemingly unwinnable election and is understandably gun-shy of of tackling the electorally toxic issue of selling government assets. And who could forget Labor's Medicare sales scare campaign, which was clearly a factor in the federal election that left the coalition holding office by a thread – If the privatisation train has now left the station, it leaves some states and the federal government with less in their arsenal to fight balance sheet repair. Until or unless the electorate's mood changes, Queensland and Western Australia will be stranded, holding power assets on their own balance sheets. Meanwhile, the potential for any federal government to look at offloading, say Medibank or Australia Post, or even parts of the National Broadband Network down the track to receive an easy influx of cash must be extinguished. Even what should be a less controversial sale by the New South Wales government of its Land Titles Registry, estimated to be worth £1.5 billion, has been marred by critics that say the process is flawed and it will result in a significant increase in costs to homeowners for insurance. But these days, the public is clearly not convinced that the benefits of privatising some types of assets, particularly power utilities, outweighs the potential detriments of having these businesses in the hands of what they consider to be rapacious big businesses that place profit ahead of public good. In recent years, Mike Baird's New South Wales government was the exception that proves the rule, having sought and won a mandate to sell the state's power assets, an outcome that's been put down to a clever sales campaign and the level of his personal popularity. And as Utting notes, Baird has clearly identified public projects for which New South Wales proceeds were earmarked. It was all about recycling assets, marketing Privatisation as a means to reduce public debt is a tougher selling point. For the public, it's much harder to see the upside. New South Wales and Victoria have managed to win sufficient support for the sales of port assets, but voters don't see these assets' sales as affecting them personally. Ownership of power assets like the grid and poles and wires are considered by the public to affect the price they pay on their bills and they take the the view that privatisation has not lowered them. History shows governments have been too keen to maximise sale sale prices, disregarded the public detriment and so have choked electoral support.
1: Very interesting and uh, there's another way that... uh, privatisation has been going on. We've lost so much of our um, expertise from our public service and there's a lot of contracting out going on. In 2014-15, consultancies cost the state government $59 million, and in the next year, 2015-16, $73 million. And it was those kind of consultancies, of course, that were used um, to very corruptly in the education department and uh, fortunately some of those people may be looking at jail. But um, the only way to have proper accountability for public money (coughs) is to have a public bureaucracy which is accountable and provides good service with expertise and is accountable for every penny spent. You can't get that from private schools you won't get it from private schools you certainly won't get it from the Catholic Education Office but um, that's enough of us for today Uh, thank you for letting us into your kitchen or lounge room or wherever you're listening to us we really do appreciate it and uh, I hope you all stay listening to 3CR and be with us next week and if you want to see more about the dogs go to our website at www.adogs.info bye for now
2: I'm standing by my bed They framed you on a murder charge Says Joe, but I dead Says Joe, but I dead The copper bosses killed you, Joe They shot you, Joe, says I Went on to organize. Went on to organize. From San Diego up to Maine, in every mine and mill, where workers strike and organize, it's there you find joy. you here last night, alive as you and me, says I, but joy.